Hello, David. Hi there, Cameron. How are you this evening? Uh, I'm doing well, uh, as uh, as well as can be expected uh, in the midst of all this this madness. So uh, I've been reading through your work recently, David, and uh, finding it very interesting. And I was uh, really excited to talk to you about some of the work that you've been doing on the brains of psychopaths and uh, their ability to feel empathy under certain circumstances. Um, so uh, that's, I guess that's, I've got some questions I want to ask you around that, but why don't, why don't you start, if you don't mind, um, introducing yourself to the listeners, tell them a little bit about yourself and uh, your work. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. This is uh, an exciting topic. Uh, I was surprised to see there was an entire podcast dedicated to psychopaths. Uh, I'm really, this is really exciting. So I'm happy to be here today. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm an assistant professor of psychology. Uh, I have my PhD in social psychology from the University of Kentucky. And right now I'm at the Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, and I'm a director of the social psychology and neuroscience laboratory there. Uh, we study aggression and antisocial behavior and personality. And so naturally, we found ourselves studying psychopaths and psychopathy. And yeah, that's, I think, led us to some really interesting research on the, the brains of psychopaths and their ability for self-control. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about those topics. That's fascinating stuff, David. Um, yeah, so this podcast is the addendum, I guess, to the book that I wrote over the last few years came out earlier this year. I tried to make the case in the book that psychopaths in positions of wealth and power in all of these organizations, not just businesses, but politics, religion, the military, the police, etc., cetera, uh, it goes a long way to explaining uh, a lot of the problems that we have. And if we can do something to neutralize the amount of wealth and power that psychopaths have and be more aware of them. And as I'm sure, well, I'd be interested to get your opinion on this. I suspect that most people today, when they think psychopaths, they think Dexter, they think serial killers. You know, I, yeah. I run a I run a search in, that's how I found you, actually. I run a search in Google News, picking up every story every day that, talks about psychopaths just to see what the talk is. And 99% yeah. of them are about Killing Eve or, <laughs> yeah. you know, a serial, which was a good show for the first couple of seasons. I'll, I'll admit, got off the rails a bit now for my money, but it was a good show. There's not a lot of talk about psychopaths in organizations, in mm -hmm. the mainstream media. Uh, would, would you agree that that's not really a meme that people grasp yet? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. You know, everyone's kind of stuck on the psychopath that we've been given in the movies and has mm. kind of failed to realize the, the, the far more scary real reality, which is that they occupy actual positions of power and through those positions do far greater harm than any murderer could do. The great irony is that the psychopaths, the more dangerous psychopaths, are the people who actually produce those films, the Hollywood films. <laughs> the producers and the directors of those films are more likely... Uh -huh to be the dangerous psychopaths. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about the research that you've been doing on the brains of psychopaths? 
Sure, happy to. Uh, it was great to get your backstory there a little bit about how you came to be interested in psychopaths because I had a, a similar path where I was interested in something else and then all of a sudden found myself studying psychopaths because I couldn't do anything else. Um, so yeah, my main focus is trying to understand why people hurt each other. Um, and so I'm not really necessarily focused on psychopaths or psychopathy, but I found myself there nonetheless because, as you mentioned, they're just such a potent harm doer. Uh, they're, you know, they make up one to two to three percent of the society of society, but they do thirty to forty percent of the violent acts, um, and that's our best estimate. And so, all the little subtle ways and insidious ways in which they hurt people, we we really don't know. So, anyway, in trying to understand why people hurt each other, I really was looking for the personality profile of the most harmful person. Who is the biggest harm doer? What are their characteristics? You know, that way we could maybe kind of predict who's going to do the harm and things like that. And so, of course, I found myself at the feet of the altar of psychopathy. And so I've been digging into that literature and trying to understand it as best I could. And as I was reading the literature, one thing that kind of stuck in my craw was the conceptualization of psychopaths as disinhibited, impulsive, uh, disorganized individuals, which just did not fit uh, at all with my understanding of what a psychopath really was, which is someone who is dangerous because they're able to regulate their harm doing. They're able to control some of their immediate impulses and wait and bide their time and plan their, their acts of harm doing to maximize the, the harm that's done. And so we wanted to do some research to really put some data behind that. You know, is that true? Are psychopaths really these disinhibited, impulsive individuals who can't get their lives together and just end up finding their ways to harm or are they more predatory and planned and controlled? Uh, and so we looked, uh, we ran two kind of main investigations into this. And the first one was with the brain. Uh, so I, I mostly do neuroscience and I mostly do brain imaging of, you know, alive human beings. Um, and so I turned to some uh, existing data that we had where we took scans of people's brains while they were just laying in the scanner at rest, just kind of hanging out. Uh, and we just looked at the gray matter in the brain. And so, you know, the brain is made out of neurons and neurons are composed largely of gray matter and, and white matter. And so gray matter is kind of the cell body. It's, it's the part that's doing the thinking, it's processing the information. And then the white matter is the part of the, the, the neuron that's kind of talking to other neurons and it's conveying the message down these long tracts and bundles and fibers. Um, and so we looked to see if psychopaths have more of this gray matter, more of this thinking capacity, processing capacity in parts of the brain that we know are involved in self-control and inhibition, uh, really things that, you know, if psychopaths are really impulsive and disorganized, that really you would see a low amount of gray matter. But if they are kind of predatory and planned and able to control themselves, you'd see a lot of these, you know, cell bodies that are able to really process the, the need for inhibition. And so it was a it was a it was a test of competing hypotheses. You know, you could say on one side you would see uh, a negative correlation, where the more psychopathic someone is, the less gray matter they would have, um, and, or you could see what we expected, which was a positive association, where the more psychopathic someone is, the more gray matter they have. And we looked at this part of the brain called the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, the VLPFC, and that's really known for like, oops, stop. You know, it's when you see the red light, that's it, it fires. It's like, stop doing what you're doing, inhibit that prepotent impulse. Um, 
And we found evidence for our prediction, which is that, you know, the more psychopathic people were, the more gray matter density they had in the VLPFC. And that was a pretty striking uh, first indicator that we were on to something. The psychopaths that you had in your MRI machine, what did they have a particular background? Because I, I suspect, you know, going back to you, this description you said earlier of psychopaths as disinhibited, uh, you know, I, I suspect that a lot of the psychopaths that form the basis of that study are people that are in prisons and weren't able to control themselves and so ended up getting caught and being in prison versus the CEO in the boardroom who probably has a different neural structure or, you know, different levels of inhibition control. Right. So for, for that reason, we couldn't look to a forensic prison population. We had to look to a successful population. And so we looked actually at college students because that's a pretty successful population. You had to have succeeded uh, pretty well just to make it to college. Um, and so we examined just kind of the naturally well, if, occurring... you, if your mother's a Hollywood star. Uh... <laughs> right. Exactly. There's lots to of study college. Had, had to study her brain. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's partly partially heritable, so you know they would have passed down those those psychopathic Is it? tendencies. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Psychopathy and other what we call antagonistic traits are are quite heritable. That's news to me. Mm -hmm. I was assuming it was a, a malfunction in the development of the empathy center of the brain uh, at some point, but you're saying it can be passed down to children. Well, there's no reason that those are mutually exclusive, so it can be both. Uh, and that, that dysfunction that you spoke of can be environmental, you know, it can be taught, it can be learned, or it can be due to some kind of environmental trauma, uh, but it also could be inherited so that you can inherit dysfunction. You can inherit uh, neural circuitry that does not function as, uh, as well as other people's setups. So it could be environmental, genetic, both. Wow. Okay. Um, and the, the college students, uh, how did you determine which of those had higher levels? Did you run them through the PCLR or something? So the PCLR is, you know, a very long, lengthy, structured interview uh, that's, that's quite fatiguing. Um, and so there's actually a wonderful self-report questionnaire version of that um, that yeah. we can give to people. And that actually has shown to be really good to give to people in more successful populations because a lot of people in an interview setting aren't really excited to disclose some of the aspects of psychopathy that, you know, we're really trying to tap into. That's interesting. Uh, you know, one of the plans that I have uh, for this year, kind of, well, it was my plan got scuppered a little bit by this year, as many people's plans did, but was to get up a, a TV series. I have, the, I have this grand vision for a TV series called The Psychopath Hunters, where <laughs> I and uh, someone like yourself uh, go around and interview the sort of people that I'm interested in, the successful people, get them to sit a test and to discover whether or not, well, where they range on the, mm -hmm. well, in terms of a score of psychopathy. And when I've been talking to producers about it, my partners, uh, you know, one of the common responses is, well, they're not going to admit on camera that they're a psychopath. They're not going to answer the questions truthfully. They're going to hide it. They're going to disassemble. And I keep saying, well, I don't know. I have, I suspect that psychopaths don't give a fuck what you think about them. 
unless they think it's going to disturb their ability, their, their, their power and their wealth. But they, I suspect a lot of these boardroom level psychopaths probably think they're winners, you're a loser, doesn't matter what you think, they're going to laugh in your face. They're, I mean, <laughs> hash, they just call you a hashtag loser and you know it doesn't i mean what 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 do you think do you in your experience do psychopaths try and uh hide the 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 fact that their behaviors are not sorry that's my dog reacting to that question um (laughs) your dog's name isn't dexter is it no it's not it's willie but no i i think you're absolutely right um one second. Right. I, I think that in you know when you talk about the upper kind of tip of the distribution of people who are you know psychopaths, I, I think you're absolutely right that they would have no problem admitting to all the different callous and unemotional tendencies that they have. You know, it's really interesting when we talk about measuring um, we talk about measuring narcissism. The one of the best ways to measure narcissism is just to ask the person, "Are you a narcissist?" <laughs> it's, it's called the single item narcissism scale, and uh, narcissists have no problem saying, "Oh yeah, I'm a complete narcissist. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm amazing, and I know it." Yeah. Uh, so no, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's just when we get into more of the subtle forms of psychopathy, where people start to have a little bit more self-awareness, more concern about others' opinions, and they might not be so comfortable disassembling their their tendencies towards psychopathy. Yeah, look, I, I suspect if it's a, a situation that where they know this is some sort of, there's something riding on it, and this gets to your research on incentives that I want to talk about, that the kind of psychopath that you talk about, and again, in, uh, based on what you've said in my head, there are... And I've always believed this. Like, if you take a hundred percent of the psychopath population, um, ninety-five, maybe ninety-nine percent of them uh, will not have the self-control or the IQ to make it into yeah. the the upper strata. Um, <laughs> But there are some, quite evidently, that do because we see evidence of them everywhere. We see them, you know, across uh, society, and they obviously have managed to control their control their impulses and 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 uh, and uh, you know, in um, in the process of going through interviews and that kind of stuff, they obviously meter out how much uh, admission they deliver about their inherent tendencies to make Mm -hmm. sure that they do get the positions that they need to get to climb up the ladder. Right. Yeah, they're very instrumental. So you did these college students, you had a chat, you you ran them through the scanner and you got them to do a self-diagnosis. And so what did you learn, apart from the more grey matter, what, what did you learn from those studies? Yeah, so I think another thing we learned from that study was, you know, we kind of just wanted a a real world outcome, you know, like something real that a psychopath would do uh, that wasn't self-reported or wasn't, you know, in the brain. And we wanted to see if, you know, those, that increased gray matter density 
would then be associated with that real world outcome. So we also asked each one of these students, you know, hey, you know, have you ever been in a fight before? It's a very simple question. It's very straightforward. Yes or no. Have you ever, you know, like started a fight with someone else? Um, and the interesting thing is, you know, if psychopaths are all these disorganized, disinhibited, impulsive individuals, you know, we know they get into fights more. But the ones that have this, you know, really strong gray matter in these inhibitory brain regions, they should be able to inhibit those impulses. And, and that's what we found. So for psychopaths who had this kind of strong, you know, brain power in these inhibitory regions, they were less likely to have been in a fight uh, in their lives, which shows that it has some association with a real world outcome uh, and some ability, hopefully, to show that it allows them to inhibit those antisocial tendencies. You know, psychopaths want to hurt people. They want to fight people, but they know not to do it all the time. So that was another right. thing we learned. So they may avoid fighting that person on the spot, that, but find a way to get their revenge and destroy them tomorrow or a month exactly. from Exactly. In a more sophisticated way, you know, get them expelled from school, steal their girlfriend, something like that. Um, yeah. And then, and yeah. then, yeah, so we wanted to kind of build on those studies and do a, a, a completely different uh, set of studies that didn't involve the brain, but was looking at uh, prisoners. Um, so we actually found this very large sample um, done in, across several uh, sites in the United States where they looked at adolescents who had been uh, convicted of a, of a serious crime, so a felony-level crime usually. This is the and Pathways to Desistance study from the early 2000s? Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, it's a great study. It's an amazing data set. And the, the investigators who, who did it are incredibly generous and have made it publicly available. Uh, you have to, you know, say kind of you have to convince them that what you're going to do with the data set is, you know, up to snuff. But they're very generous to share it. And so we, we looked at this where, you know, they kind of study. We get, they get this baseline intake when the person is brought into the, you know, criminal justice system. And then they follow them over time. And the goal of the study is to kind of see what predicts whether or not they're going to you know, become recidivists and go back into the, you know, criminal justice system or make their way out. Uh, and so we were very interested in this because we were curious to see if our pattern of findings replicated where, you know, typically psychopaths, a lot of them, most of them end up in the penal system. They at one point, in fact, most points in their life are incarcerated. And we were curious to see who gets out and who stays. Uh, and does it have something to do with how psychopathic they are? And if it does, according to our model, self-control should be kind of the determining factor, their ability to inhibit their impulses, those psychopathic tendencies to hurt other people and um, stop engaging in these impulsive crimes that get them arrested. Mm. And so we tested our model and we found really good evidence that uh, for people who kind of start off pretty psychopathic, uh, they are actually able to develop stronger self-control faster than people who don't. Um, and it's, it's only some of the psychopathic traits, so it's not all of them. There are some very like impulsive aspects to psychopathy, and those did not show these uh, patterns of results. But for things like being uh, grandiose, you know, being full of yourself and thinking you're incredible, things like being manipulative, you know, you're able to kind of get others to do what you want them to do, uh, these traits, when people were high in these when they were, you know, arrested, they actually developed impulse control faster over time than their less psychopathic counterparts. So it shows that people are kind of compensating. 
They, they know they have these antisocial impulses and they know that if they just give into those impulses, they're going to end up back in prison and they're going to have bad outcomes. Um, so they develop self-control. It's kind of like working out a muscle. Um, and for those individuals who are able to develop faster self-control, they had better outcomes. So they got incarcerated less. Now, we don't know if they didn't commit as many crimes. We just know that they didn't get caught as much. That's the worry. Um, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we kind of call this like the weaponized uh, self-control. Yeah. They just went out there and committed, uh, well, we you know, were so smart that they figured out how to not get caught um, on the exactly. outside. Right. Right. So they can control themselves uh, under certain circumstances, and this gets back, I guess, to your work on incentivization that they mm -hmm. work out that, all right, well, if I just curb these behaviors, I will achieve, I have a better chance of achieving what I want, which is more more control, more power, or more wealth, which are right. sides of the same coin often. And you right. you did some work on uh, empathy too. I read like one of the common beliefs in the literature is that psychopaths cannot feel normal levels of empathy. It's not necessarily zero empathy, and it's not yeah. necessarily zero empathy for zero uh, creatures. Some psychopaths <laughs> exhibit lots of empathy towards animals, like your mm -hmm. your dog, uh, Willie. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, lower levels of empathy, let's say that, significantly lower levels of empathy for most other humans, which is why they're able to do these horrendous things that damage the lives, not necessarily kill, but destroy mm -hmm. economies, let uh, novel coronaviruses run rampant in their societies, uh, whatever yep. it may be fire tens of thousands of employees on Christmas Eve via a fax or whatever it is. Yeah, right. Uh, but your, and, and the belief in the, the impression that I get from most of the literature is that that, that lack of empathy is incurable. Uh, there's nothing much we can do about it. Although to be fair, most of the literature I've read has said, well, that's our current understanding, but there hasn't been a lot of work really done on it for large test groups over a long period of time. Now, I get the impression from your research, you believe that this isn't true, that uh, psychopaths can learn empathy under certain conditions. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I kind of take this contrarian approach and it, I hope you're getting a theme here where, you know, a lot of people think that, oh, psychopaths don't have self-control and, oh, they don't have empathy. And I say, oh, they absolutely do. They've just weaponized them. They just right. use them in a way that furthers their own ends and they turn them right off when it doesn't matter to them. And in situations where we would normally want quite a bit of empathy or self-control. Um, but yeah, so that's, that, that's the deficit approach that we, we call it where it's okay. Psychopaths happen when people don't have empathy. Uh, which I, I disagree with because just if you and I had our empathy switch turned off, it doesn't mean we would all of a sudden want to start hurting people. You know, empathy isn't the reason we don't hurt people. It's, it's one of several, but you have to have the impulse in the first place. You have to have the thing that says hurt that person first. And 
I think psychopathy is, is part of a lack of empathy, but it's also part of that harmful impulse. You want to hurt others, or at least you're fine with hurting others to get what you want. Uh, so I believe that they have the capacity, they just use it when it helps them. Well, I would argue, David, that that is true of all of us. Like, in, sure. very, very few of us are uh, saints. Uh, we, I mean, speaking personally, I've done things in my life that have hurt other people. I've got plenty of ex-wives that will attest to that, uh, some of whom probably <laughs> consider me a psychopath, probably think me coming out with this book is the great irony. Um, uh, so I make the argument, I, I try and make the argument anyway in the book that all of us can do bad things. In certain circumstances, we will hurt other people. We will lie, we will cheat, we will steal, we will, uh, uh, you know, do bad things for personal gain or for a variety of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. In my mind, the difference is when most of us, quote-unquote normal people, do bad things, we feel bad about it. We mm -hmm. feel guilty we lose sleep. We worry that we'll be caught out. We worry about the consequences coming and biting us on the ass. It, 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 it eats us away. You know, we have guilt and anxiety that come with us. The difference in my mind is that when a psychopath hurts other people, they have the best night's sleep of their lives because they feel like a winner. Mm -hmm. Not They don't feel bad about it. They're like, look, I look what I did to get what I want. I'm a champion. But that, so I would say that we all have the ability to hurt others. So, what makes us different from psychopaths then in your book? We, in your, from your research, how are they different? No, I mean, you, you raise a very, very important point, uh, which is that, yeah, we're not all perfect angels and that we all can turn our empathy on and off at some, to some degree. Uh, and we can harm, hurt people to various extents. Um, I absolutely agree with you that the big difference between psychopaths and non-psychopaths is the shame and the guilt. But those are different from empathy. Uh, you can really? have shame and yeah, I, I absolutely think so. Uh, and there's, there's huh. very good evidence those are different things. So I can be, I can feel guilty and feel ashamed of my behavior. Um, without necessarily feeling the victim's pain. I can worry, that's a self-focused emotion. I'm worried yes. about me and, and my right. actions and my reputation and what people are going to think about me, whereas empathy is an other-focused emotion. Um, so actually, mm -hmm. I, I'm actually in, in total agreement with you that I think shame and guilt are, are really what differentiate us, but I think those are very different from empathy. Right. I see what you're saying. That makes sense. I mean... I mean, I haven't broken it down a great deal, but I mean, if you feel, if you feel guilt, that can be a combination of I feel bad that I hurt this other person, but then you will justify it with the reasons that you had to do it. Right. Um, and and part of it might be anxiety about getting caught and the implications of that for your career or your right whatever. Right. Well, let me. That, that takes me to another question for you. As um, 
hard I I think of myself as a hard science guy. Like I I'm a big believer that I don't have free will. That my brain mm-hmm. is made of chemicals. Chemicals are made of molecules. Molecules are made of atoms. Atoms obey the laws of physics. So every thought and action that I or anyone else have is 100% the result of the laws of physics and chemistry playing out in my brain. And uh, there's nothing free about that. It's a combination. Well, it's it's all neural architectures in my brain playing out, combination of genetics and uh, conditioning and learning that's gone on. But the the follow-through for that is I believe that psychopaths aren't bad people. They're not evil people. They're just people whose brains are different and cause them to act differently. And I, I wonder, you know, from somebody with your background, uh, do you feel that in society in general in 2020, we have a an acceptance of the neural genesis to behavioral archetypes or is one of the things that hampers a lot of this, uh, the acceptance of this in society in general, this hangover from, uh, you know, a pre-scientific worldview of, well, there are evil people who just choose to do evil things because they're evil and not, well... You know, psychopaths don't choose to be psychopaths. Uh, pedophiles don't choose to be pedophiles. It's just the way their brains cause them to act. And I don't know. I just think if if we could get to that point a lot sooner, we would uh, be a lot better off as a society. Yeah, you've you really plucked the 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 big string here. This is the most the most difficult question I think I grapple with. And I grapple with it a lot. And I don't know if I'm at a solid place with it yet, but you raised, you know, the main concerns, which is free will. And if we know what we know about how the brain works, it's it's hard to really place blame on people for having certain psychological tendencies because we know that a lot of those are heritable. And in the same way, the, the, the sword cuts both ways. So it's then hard to have... Um, you know, to throw a lot of accolades at certain people, because we also know that a lot of the skills that they have weren't chosen. People didn't like, well, I'm going to be pretty and smart and I'm going to be ugly and a psychopath. That's not how it works, right? We know that these things are inherited and they're given to us by our childhood environments in large part. Um, they're very malleable, but in, in a lot, a large chunk of it is due to our genetics and our early life environment. And so with that knowledge, how then do we cast stones at people for tendencies that we know they didn't choose. Um, And that's really the hard part. And so, and that's going to be one of the biggest philosophical issues that our society is going to have to grapple with because our scientific understanding is going to keep underscoring that fact, which is that, you know, a psychopath did not sit there one day and say, yep, I'm going to be this way. Mm. Uh, And we punish them like they did. Well, yeah. So my argument in the book is that, uh, again, it's not their fault, but like pedophiles, uh, I don't think it's their fault. They didn't choose to be a pedophile. But as a society, we say, well, listen, um, this kind of behavior is not conducive to the kind of society that we want to have. So we are going to try to limit your ability to harm others through the natural expression of, of your neural architecture. So it's not 
uh, a form of justice that is about punishment. It's about trying to limit the damage that people can do in society without you know, uh, uh, blaming them. You know, I get very upset or not. I get very disturbed uh, when I see the media and people on social media talking about wanting to string pedophiles up and uh, do this or that to them. They didn't ask to be this way. This is, and in fact, I feel empathy for them. It must suck to have these impulses that you probably know society deems inappropriate like it must have sucked to be uh, homosexual for the last however many thousands of years in, in a lot of societies. Uh, you know, you, you were born with these tendencies and society says you can't have them. So what do you do? You, you, you try and curb them if you can, or you try and hide them from society. And, and I think psychopaths are in a similar situation. The flips are the, 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 the the difference, though, is that we tend to we tend to reward psychopaths, successful ones in our society. Right. We put them on the front cover of magazines, and we 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 give them television networks to run, and we make them rich, and we 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 give them accolades, and we bow down to them, which is, I think, suggests that we have a bit of a psychopathic culture in our society. So let me let me wrap up by asking you then, based on your research, David, uh, what can be done about psychopaths and positions of power if we accept that uh, your findings indicate that they can control themselves, that they can develop empathy under certain conditions, um, and that they aren't all so impulsive that they can't uh, moderate their own behavior. What should we do moving forward? Solve the big puzzle for me, David. If uh, I made you, I believe like the, the position of president of the United States is going to be open soon. If I made you president of the United States and gave you absolute power as your president's uh, current president seems to think he has, what would you do about psychopaths? I, I would immediately resign the position for being woefully underqualified. That would be my first step. Not an um, option, David. No, no. Okay. Self humility, self-abnegation <laughs> is not uh, not uh, uh, allowed in this case. I see. You have okay. to step up. Your country needs you, David. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, I mean, at this point, you know, a, a bunch of asparagus would be a better president than what we have right now. But, um, yeah, I... When it comes to the problem of psychopaths, I think you really cut to the part that's really the most enabling, which is that we have a psychopathic culture where we lionize and revere certain traits um, that we we shouldn't, or we should, but only in certain contexts. So a, a core aspect of being a psychopath is this fearlessness, this boldness, this courageousness that we really like, especially in America. You know, we love to see... You know, people go it on their own and, 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 you know, against withering criticism, they continue on and they make it. And we, we like that story. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who exhibits those traits, we tend to elevate them in our society because that's what we really value. But the problem is, is that to for the a White lot House of people, sometimes, <laughs> sadly, quite, quite often, actually. Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, very quite often. That's Sorry. an objective fact. No, it's true. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think. 
really the thing that I would do is start like a public information campaign to make them realize like these are good traits, but only when they're in conjunction with compassion and empathy and things like that. And not when they're in conjunction with other psychopathic traits like grandiosity and manipulativeness and impulsivity. Um, you really need to, to, to not include, you, know, you need not say like, oh, as long as you have these three traits where you're bold and courageous and dominant, uh, I, I like you. You need to say, I only like those traits when they come along with compassion and inclusion of others and caring for others. Um, and so I would just kind of start with a campaign to be like, recognize when this is good and when it's bad. Because this is a big academic debate right now is, you know, whether or not those those traits, those boldness, fearlessness, dominance traits, whether those should even belong in psychopathy, because they can be good. You don't want a firefighter who's like afraid of everything or a general for that matter. Um, so they're, they're they can be very adaptive. So I would just try and inform the public as to like these are important traits. We like them a lot, but you should make sure they are coincide with very pro-social orientations. And what if you can't have all of those things in the one brain? <laughs> well, then we're in a lot of trouble. Um, then I would say we need to reorient our values. You know, we need to say that we have maybe overvalued boldness, dominance, fearlessness, and maybe we need to bring our values back towards a higher emphasis on compassion and communion and and other focus, and not so much on self focus. You ever read Iron Rand, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, etc.? <laughs> In college, long ago, I'm a big fan. I'm I'm I'm, a, I'm this strange kind of person who I'm a big fan of Ayn Rand's work, and I'm a big fan of Noam Chomsky, and uh, and the two can live quite happily in my brain. Um, and uh, it's interesting when I first read Ayn Rand in my early twenties, as people often do. I came to the conclusion that I agree with a lot of what she's saying about uh, innovation and the entrepreneurial spirit, people who are willing to break through the norm and drive society forward. But I, I think she also missed out on some stuff. And and part of, and, and it's funny how uh, 30 years later, I've sort of come back to this topic and and I often think about her writings when I'm thinking about psychopaths because um, she uh, rails against altruism as being a negative uh, thing in society whereas I've never thought of altruism as necessarily being incompatible with entrepreneurialism because I think that uh, and and this is, I think, one of the ways where Australia is very different from the United States is that in our culture, we tend to have uh, this idea that a healthy society is good for everyone. Mm -hmm. if, you have, if you have people that are educated and have access to medicine and healthcare and are feeling safe and secure and happy and positive about the future that's good for society. And if, if it doesn't matter if you're one of the elite, one of the 1%, you want to have a society of people around you that are healthy and educated and are productive because you can't survive by yourself. You need, it doesn't matter who you are, you need a society around you to provide all of the services that you rely upon. And also, you don't know who the person is going to be that's going to come up with the cure for cancer. It could be the child of the poorest couple in the country. And if that kid doesn't survive to adulthood and doesn't have the ability to get a university education, you know, where's the next Einstein going to come from or the next Elon Musk or the next Steve Jobs or whatever, Mom? 
Um, but getting, uh, this is, I was getting a long way of getting to Steve Jobs because he's the, one of the guys that come up a lot in my conversations with people about psychopaths. Um, did you read the Walter Isaacson biography on Steve? I did not, but I heard, I, heard, I heard things about it. So the suggestion in reading that is that Steve had psychopathic tendencies in terms of his interpersonal relationships, um, you know, quite famously sure. sort of rejected his uh, child, his eldest child, first child, Lisa, until she was mm-hmm. an adult, um, treated her abhorrently, um, treated his staff um, kind of cruelly and brutally. Often, the the classic sort of screaming, ranting, um, uh, archetypal startup technology CEO. Um, and yet, you know, I think did a lot of good. It's debatable. A lot of people hate yeah. smartphones and all that kind <laughs> of stuff, but you know, playing a big role in what's happening in in your country at the moment in terms of the the reverse panopticon, as uh, mm-hmm. somebody referred to it to me a long time ago. Um, That's clever. So, you know, I do think that psychopaths have certain abilities and character traits that are valuable in society. Sure. They can drive us forwards They because they do believe in their own vision so strongly and think of themselves as superior. They are the ones that can break through walls and just keep going. So we don't want to, I agree, we don't want to get rid of them altogether. We want to take the best that they have to offer and neutralize their ability to do damage. Right. So my, the, the suggestion that I put in my book is I want to see all organizations, not just businesses, again, political, religious, military, policing, justice, etc., run all of our senior management through a PCLR uh, test, <laughs> rank them, and say, okay, well, Mr... Murdoch, Mr. Uh, pick, on one, pick on one of my own countrymen for a change. There you go. Um, uh, you've, you, you've got a very high score uh, on the PCLR. No, that's not a good thing. No, stop, <laughs> stop beating your chest and celebrating. No, put the champagne down. Um, and what we need to do is figure out how inside of the organization we're going to ring fence your ability to do damage with this. Mm-hmm with the power and the wealth that you have. So all like maybe we put together a governance board of people who all score low on the PCLR, verified non-psychopaths to review all of the the decisions that you make. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, they have the overriding vote on all of your decisions uh, in mm-hmm. terms of some kind of metric about damage the damage, the harm that it could cause. Because we want, as I said, we, I think we want to get the best out of them, but inhibit their ability to cause damage. And it's not clear to me how we get to there from here, but I think you're right. Building awareness uh, is the first step about psychopaths in society. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely onto it there, which is that, they are valuable. They have societal value. Otherwise, they wouldn't 
rise to the upper echelons like they do, they just need to be checked. Uh, and the exact way to do that is a really great open question right now. I, I haven't seen any research on organizationally, how do you attenuate the damage and optimize the benefits of psychopathic leaders? Uh, it sounds like a very worthy program of study. Yeah, I think I conclude the book by saying, look, it's going to require much smarter people than me to figure this out. But <laughs> I just want us to see, as I said earlier, you know, I run this Google News search and I just don't see people talking about it. A few people, you and a few others that I've had on this podcast over the last couple of months and Bob Hare, obviously, and people like him that have been trying to ignite this conversation for decades now, but we don't seem to be much closer to it being in the popular consciousness that uh, we're being, the world is being run by psychopaths. Yeah, it's, it's hard to make people aware of the fact that a lot of the decisions being made are being made by psychopaths. Even today, I think we'd like to think that we've rooted them all out. And then on the other mm -hmm. hand, it's really hard to be an advocate for psychopaths and say that they do have, you know, they do have abilities and that they some of those are valuable and that we could take advantage of those to, to spur on progress. It's it's a tough position to have, uh, but but science really supports uh, supports that. Yeah, and what I can continually say to my American friends when they're railing about we, we need to get rid of Trump is I, I keep saying, well, like, I don't think Donald Trump is the problem. I think Donald Trump is a symptom of the problem. Mm. I think uh, the problem is you have a psychopathic culture and psychopaths mm. throughout the society that allow people like Donald Trump to become president, which in uh, the real timeline should never have even been a possibility. But unfortunately, we yeah. fell into one of the experimental <laughs> timelines somewhere yep. at some point. In, in the, the simulation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or the, uh, the quantum multiverse. Um, all right. Well, David, thank you for coming on. It was a delight to chat with you. Thank you for the, the research and the writing that you've done. I've enjoyed reading it, and I look forward to what you do next in this field. I think you're um, doing cutting-edge stuff on this subject, you and your colleagues, and um, I'm excited about it. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to chat about it. I think we talked about some ideas here that I'm going to take back to the lab. Right. Just don't put me on an MRI machine because uh, I'm not sure I want to know. Okay. You have my word. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, I think that got recorded. Um, Good. I'll let you know if it didn't. Uh, okay. <laughs> otherwise, I'll... I'll edit that and put it out and um, I might just put it up on YouTube as well, seeing as we have video, if that's all right with you. My pleasure. Yeah, that'd be great. Are you and your wife are well? I know you said you were in hospital at one point. Yeah, we had a rough go there. Um, so my wife's pregnant and we just got into the third <sighs> trimester. And just as we were getting into the second trimester a few months ago, uh, she had a kidney stone and it just it, it evolved into something really critical really quickly. And we were, we were in the hospital and then we got back out and then we had to go back in. And so everything's okay now. Everything's healthy. She's healthy. Baby's healthy. So all is oh, well. That's good. But, but it was bad during that, during that, that stress. So I appreciate you being patient with me and, and working out a, a 
the time. Yeah, now. no, not at all. So it wasn't coronavirus related. It was something else. No, totally okay. unrelated. Kidney stone, right. and then having a kidney stone when you're pregnant is just not a. It's not a good setup. <laughs> yeah, man. I said to my wife the other. We were talking about this, not kidney stones, but just being pregnant the other night again. We've got a six-year-old, yeah. and I've got two nineteen-year-olds from a previous marriage. But I was like, man, like. She said something about how would you something about being a woman. I was like, no way would I ever. <laughs> no chance. Like, if you, no way. <laughs> I've often said, if it was up to men to get pregnant and give birth, the human race would have yeah. disappeared a long, long time ago. ago. No way. <laughs> That's no chance. No way would no I go chance. through that. No. Oh. No. No. All right. Nightmare. Well, I'm glad to hear you. Well, um, hope Thank you. Uh, things are safe in Virginia. I know things are quietening down a little bit. It seems over there, but. Um, little bit yeah man anyway yeah, um, i'll be in touch maybe maybe we can uh, do more of these uh, as you you know whenever you write an article or you want to talk about something psychopath related please invite yourself on um okay i i my intention is to keep doing the podcast and maybe the tv show to, to try and again get this conversation started but it's 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 difficult to uh, find people like yourself, experts in the field that want to talk about this subject. Uh, so, yeah, anytime you want to talk about it and, and promote stuff, uh, let me know. You're always welcome on. Happy to do so. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, right, pleasure. Have a good night, David. Thanks. You too, Cameron. Bye. Bye. 